Lord, we love you, God, and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a place to come together this morning and just to, uh, to come together as a family, Lord. Uh, Lord, immediate family, extended family, uh, kind of, you know, people just kind of checking out the family. Lord, we, uh, we pray, Lord, that, uh, again, that this time would be a time where you are glorified, your work is done, your word is taught, your church is strengthened, that we can live as lights in this world, God, holding out the hope of Christ, Lord, compelling each other to that work, Lord, ministering to one another, ministering grace in your word to one another and to this world. But we don't want to just do something. We want to be what you have created us to be. We want to do this in unity with great purpose. So, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for a chance to gather. We thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for Jesus, that in him we have hope and life. And we thank you for the work that you accomplished in him. So, Lord, now, Lord, we give you this time. I ask that you would work in spite of me or through me, however you desire. Lord, just let it be clear uh, what your word is for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we go any further, I want to ask you a question. We're going to do kind of a thought exercise. I like to do these every now and then. I want you just to take a moment and, and truly try to think of a time where you experience someone being profoundly kind to you, a time where you experienced true, great, deep kindness. And I don't mean that time that someone lets you in in traffic. I don't mean the time that, that, that you went into Starbucks and they gave you free coffee, or the time that someone held the door for you. Something, I don't mean that. I mean a time where you experienced great, profound kindness that, that, that changed you, that struck you, that, st that sticks out to you. So we're just going to take a moment to have some awkward silence, give you a time to think. All right, so for some of you, that was not nearly enough time to think. You're like, I still don't know. It was a, it's a struggle to maybe think of a time you experienced that kind of kindness that, that, that just kind of got to your core. For some of you, it came to mind right away. Um, and, and just for, for those of you that had something come to mind, what came to mind? For, for those of you all that didn't have something come to mind, where did you find yourself thinking? Like, What spaces of your life and memories did you find yourself going to, trying to kind of delve the depths for a time that you experienced that kind of kindness and care? Um, I'll tell you what came to mind for me. And it was hard for me at first. Something did not come to mind right away when I thought about this. When I was in college, we had moved into this house, uh, myself and two other roommates and uh, we, we lived in this house for 16 days and one cool January night we had some friends over we had fallen asleep watching the matrix and and we wake up about two or three in the morning I don't know what time it was to our house being on fire and we we rush we try to put the fire out futilely we give up we get everyone outside and the the family that owned the house uh, lived just a, a block away. The, the, the guy that owned it worked the night shift. I remember finally get a, getting a hold of him and telling him, hey, we, 
burnt your house down. And we're sta- he, so we're standing on the sidewalk watching the fire department work on the fire. Standing there, it was a cold, wet night in January. Standing there in my pajama pants and t-shirt and my wool socks. Um, I, this is what I was wearing. And kind of getting wet, and there's six of us standing there just kind of watching this happen. And the guy rolls up, and he rolls up, and you know, you know I mean, well, what's going to happen? I burnt this guy's house down. And he rolls up, and before he ever looks at his house, he comes straight to the six of the seven of us and says, is everybody okay? Do you need anything? He leaves, go to his, goes to his house and grabs jackets and blankets and covers all of us up, does all that before he ever shows one concern for his house that had burnt to the ground. That's kind. Like, I, I, I it's... I, I was wondering if I was going to get emotional. I'm glad that I'm not, but it is an emotional thing for me to think about, like that kind of kindness. Well, and we'll come back to that in just a little bit, but to think about what kind of situations come to mind, I would bet for those of you that, that had something come to mind, it was a time of either great need or great loss that someone stepped in and showed you that kind of kindness. Why, why do I start with this? Why do I bring this up? We've been teaching through our core statements of beliefs as far as our, our convictions, what we hold to as a church that, that anchors us in the truth of God, who He is, who we are, what our purpose in this life is. And, and we come to the work of Christ today. That's what we're working through. We've worked through who God is. We've worked through uh, what the Word of God is. We've worked through the human condition, our need. And we've worked through who the person of Jesus is. Today we come to the work of Christ. And, and, we, and we can make the mistake to approach this in some dry, academic, intellectual way. And what I know is that when I experienced, when I experienced that kind of profound kindness, it was personal. And I want each one of us to make sure that we find ourselves sitting in that place today. That as we talk about the work of Christ, that, it would, that we would see it to be extremely personal that we would not allow ourselves to listen to this at a safe distance and say, okay, good, I understand the work of Christ now. Let me go to lunch. But that we would be profoundly moved, understanding the profound kindness of God that was shown to us in Christ. So if you thought of a moment that you experienced that kind of kindness, go deeper into that, that gratitude that came. If you, if you found yourself meandering and trying to dig deep, understand that we are going to see a picture of this kind of kindness today that even you have an invitation to. So let's exist in that frame of mind. We cannot proceed at a safe distance. And we can't because we still have a problem. If, we, if we're talking about the last four weeks and what we've talked about, we've talked about some huge concepts, some, some life-changing, transforming truths. But if, if, if all we have is what we've talked about so far, we still have a problem. So we can't remain in a safe distance. So far we've talked about God as a sovereign, holy, and good creator who demands a righteous standard. We've talked about the, uh, us as people, our, our, our desperate need in our fallenness, in our rebellion, in our sin that we cannot overcome by any amount of effort or good works or association or church attendance. So we see that desperately. We see, last week we, we started turning the corner. We, started talk, we talked about Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one that God promised would come, that he has come. So we see that Jesus is the Messiah, but today we see that we still need forgiveness. We still need to experience the work that the promised Messiah Jesus 
accomplished so that this problem can be remedied. So again, don't stay at a safe distance today. You know, we think about forgiveness and we think about fairness and we think about love and, and, we, and we try to reconcile all these things in our minds and our hearts and our world today. And, and it could be tempting to think about forgiveness the same way that, 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 that uh, a German poet named Heinrich Hein will say, I don't know how, my, my German phonetics are off. Um, Heinrich Hein, uh, this was his response. He was a German poet and skeptic on his deathbed, kind of thinking on God. He said this, and this is where, often, where, where many of us can find ourselves as we think about forgiveness and what's fair. He says, God will forgive me. That's his job. God will forgive me. That's his job. Isn't forgiveness God's duty is kind of what we say, his obligation can't God simply forgive freely? Seems right, seems loving, but he can't. We must remember that God is both fully loving and fully just. Remember to be just is to condemn the guilty and acquit, acquit the innocent. That's what a good judge who is just does. We can't forget what Proverbs seventeen fifteen says. It says this, it says, He who justifies the wicked, he who acquits the, the guilty... And he who, can, who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So, we, so for God to be fully God, for him to be loving and just, he can't just say, I forgive those who are guilty. There must be a price. There must be a sentence satisfied. His wrath must be satisfied. So today we teach uh, building off of what we've been covering all along. So again, once again, I know that I cannot dig into all the depths of what needs to be said to fully paint this picture today, to try to do it in the next 25 minutes. Uh, so uh, again, I, as I know I'm going to go past some concepts that maybe you need more context for, after today, go back and listen to some of the sermons from the past four weeks. Let's go, again, call me. We'll go get coffee, discuss more, come to the office, or call each other even better. Um, so know that we're going to need more discussion after today, especially if you haven't been with us the past uh, four weeks. But today we look at the work of Christ. And as we do, let us think well on the loss we have suffered, on our great need, our desperate state of need, and the profound kindness of God shown in this work of Christ. So let's read together kind of what our statement is about the work of Christ, the work Christ accomplished. So it says this, I think it's on the screen. It says, we believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. So today, we're just going to break that statement down and work through it in pretty quick fashion, um, but finding kind of our biblical foundations of why we would understand this to be true about the work of Christ. And so we start first. We believe that Jesus Christ is our representative and substitute. He is our representative and substitute. What does that mean? How is that possible? So last week, when we talked about the person of Jesus, we saw that he was fully man and fully God. He was two natures in one man fully man and fully God, this allows him to be our representative and our substitute, our representative going before God as an advocate for us on our, on, our, on our behalf and a substitute, which we'll see what that means in a second. So because he's fully man, because he's fully God, he can be these two things for us. Jesus can be our representative because he was fully man. 
He came. We see in Matthew 4, 2, we see him expressing human need. And this is after he had fasted for 40 days in the desert, it says in Matthew 4, 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Simple statement, but that's something that humans do. God God does not hunger. He doesn't need anything. Jesus was fully man. He was hungry. And then if you, were, if you were to proceed in that story, we would see that he also faced the temptations that we face. He faced every temptation that we could face, but he did them without sin. So temptations, tempting, had an effect on him, and he had to choose not to give in to that temptation. We also see in John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus had emotions as a human, as fully man has emotions. This is at the, at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend that had died. It says in Jesus, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. And that wept is, 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 is a hard cry. I mean, he wept. He wept with compassion. He wept with empathy. He wept with brokenness over the effect of sin in this world. Jesus had emotions as one who is fully man. So Jesus experienced every bit of humanness that we do. He had to learn to walk as a baby. He depended on his parents to feed him. He wasn't eight months old walking up to the cabinet and mashing some mill and making some dough and making bread and putting it in the fire that he made in the, in the kiln, whatever they made bread in back then, so that he could have some bread, some unleavened bread probably, right? No, anyway. Um, he was dependent on his parents. He, he, it hurt when he stubbed his toe. I mean, I assume, you know, we don't know in the Bible if he stubbed his toe, but everyone's done it at least once, and if he did, it hurt. Again, like we saw, he had emotions. He felt physical need. He he needed to sleep. He needed to rest. He needed to eat. So as we talked about last week in, in more detail, he was fully man. So what does that mean as our representative? He can identify with you and me. He is a Savior who can identify He is not some God who requires something of us that he did not face himself. He can identify with your need. So that's how he can be our representative. He can represent you and me. So Jesus is our representative. He's also our substitute. And he can be our substitute because not only was he fully man, but he was fully God. And again, this will blow your mind a little bit, right? Like, again, but let's just acknowledge if you believe that God is God, that there are supernatural possible things that are mysteries beyond our comprehension, we cannot be fully man, fully God. Jesus can be, okay? So let's just, again, I know that it's a stretch for our finite minds to get around, but this is what we would say. Jesus is fully God as well. So while Jesus is like us in our humanness, he's also very different than us. Thankfully, we see in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For to us a child is born, speaking of Jesus coming in human form, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Speaking of Jesus, Colossians 2, 9, For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So it wasn't just after he left earth that he took on being fully God. He was fully man while on earth, as well as at the same time being fully God. So why does that matter? Why do we care about that? Because if Jesus was fully man, he can be our representative and is fully God. He can be our substitute. He was perfect and sinless in his humanness. 
And we'll get to why that matters a little bit more in just a minute. Because Jesus is fully God, the eternal weight of our eternal needs finds shoulders in Him that are eternally strong enough to satisfy what is demanded. So, He's our representative, and He's our substitute. So to talk about what it is to be our representative and substitute, what did Jesus, as those two things, our representative and substitute, have to do? What did he have to face? How did these things take effect? How did they have any impact? He had to die. Why? Because that was what is demanded of you and me. If we're going back to the human condition, again, why some of these things we're going to have to blow through. But the, 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 the thing that was demanded of us in our rebellion against God and our own sinfulness is that it says the wages of sin is death. Not just this physical death where blood stops circulating through our body and our breath stops and our brain waves stop, but an eternal death, the eternal death separated from God. So we see that. So we see that we have this great need, and because that is what was Sentenced upon us, Jesus had to step in as our representative and substitute. He had to experience those things on our behalf. So it is Jesus' shed blood, the fact that he shed his blood on the cross, as our statement says, that he could fulfill what it is to represent and substitute, and that could achieve a work in you and me. Why must his blood, why did it have to be shed? Again, if we're going back to who God is, is our creator God, the determiner of all good, all right, the giver of the law, the giver and author of truth, the perfecter of our faith, he demanded this. And he laid out the way for his people in the old covenant to find good standing. It was in the sacrificial system. They would have a high priest who would go on once a year into the temple before in the holiest of holies before God and make sacrifice on behalf of their people. If you've heard of Yom Kippur today, that is what Yom Kippur is. It is the Day of Atonement. So there, in the, in the, in the Old Testament law, that was what was given. God said, here's how you will maintain right standing with me. And he says, you will find an animal without blemish. You will bring them before me with, as a high priest who is prepared well and, and make a sacrifice. That's very much of an oversimplification, but that's, the, that's kind of where we're at of why we would say why blood had to be shed. Because God, the creator God, author of all truth, giver of truth, said so. Who else gets to say so? Right? We often kind of rise up like, yeah, I don't like that. Why does he get to say so? Well, who else does? If he is that, if he, God is who he says he is, and we say he is that, the creator of all things, who else is going to say so? Why should we not let him say so? We don't get to choose that. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is speaking of the Old Testament sacrifices of the animals, but as a shadow of the greater sacrifice in Christ. So only in the shed blood of Christ can there be forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Because it is in the shedding of blood that the price was paid. It is in the shedding of blood that the, that the sentence that was required was satisfied. We're talking about God being a just judge. Not just a loving God, but a just judge where he can only acquit the innocent and he must condemn the guilty. We're seeing that the guilt, now we're starting to step into the guilt being satisfied as our substitute and our representative. 
So we see he's our representative, our substitute. We see that that was achieved in his shed blood on the cross. So then we continue through our statement, when Jesus gave his life for you and me, he became our perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. So what does that mean? Quickly, is our perfect sacrifice, we find that Jesus offers us perfect forgiveness. And let's, let's just talk about what those two things mean. Perfect in what way? In what way? First off, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice and that he was perfectly sinless. Again, he faced everything you and I face, but without sin. He was, again, if, if the spotless lamb was sacrificed in the Old Testament way, that was but a shadow of the, the perfectly spotless lamb of Jesus. So we see that Jesus' is, his, his sacrifice is perfect and all-sufficient and that he offered the perfect Sacrifice. First Peter 1, 18 through 19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So his sacrifice was perfect in that it was an eternal, perfect offering. It was also perfect in that Jesus is the only fitting sacrifice because he is fully God and was eternal. So not only was he fully man, so that he faced, but then again, his sacrifice being that he was fully God was one of eternal sovereign work as well. So this is what makes Jesus' sacrifice all sufficient, is that it meets every need because it covered every base. There was nothing lacking in his offering. Nothing lacking. To say that Jesus is our all-sufficient sacrifice is to say that the forgiveness given in him is totally complete and of no need of any further supplementation. When we experience the forgiving, cleansing work of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we are completely forgiven, completely made innocent. So it is totally sufficient, perfect in every way. So saying when we come and we find forgiveness, we, we, we confess and we believe and we say, Lord, I need you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. The forgiveness is given once and for all. We don't have to, just you know, thinking of coming back to the old covenant where the high priest would go in once a year. They had to do that every year. Jesus was the, if you read Hebrews, it just expounds on this. So again, Spend some time in Hebrews on your own. But once and for all, he was the sacrifice. Once and for all, he is our perfect high priest forever, going before God on our behalf. So perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. God's forgiveness is complete in him. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 says this, For God has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then we would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself in Jesus. Are you sinking into the profound kindness yet? Is it personal 
yet. So it says that he did this for our sins. And again, we went into this in a lot greater detail a couple weeks ago when we talked about the human condition. But let us just remember our human condition. From Adam on, we have all sinned. We inherited the sin of Adam and we have all sinned on our own. So we see the the words of Romans 3.23 to be true. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Again, so we have all sinned and the wages of sin is death. So again, we have that need. So coming back to this thought of forgiveness, we see now it wasn't just that God pronounced the words, I forgive you. Because those, those could just be empty words. But he said, I forgive you. But he said that through the process of making you innocent. And Jesus is our representative and substitute who shed his blood on the cross for our sins. He made us innocent. His blood washes us clean. So we stand before God not as one who he stays as his sentence, but we stand, as before, we stand before God in Christ as one who never sinned. Because in Christ, his righteousness, his perfection is given to us, is accredited to you and me upon confession. And so God, the great, holy, righteous God who demands that same righteousness, who we sinned against, is the very one who said, I will meet your need. That's called atonement. And this is where we kind of and this is where we're coming to near the end of our statement. It says, in his atoning death. So what does that mean? Our substitute and representative Jesus is able to atone for our sin, our debt. What does atonement mean? Atonement, we could define it this way: it is a payment of human debt to God by a substitute which God Himself provided. Does that blow your mind? Like, just think on that this week. Like, I would love for us all just to think on that statement this week, wrapped around having all this truth we've been talking about wrapped around that. And I would love for us to come back in here next week. And as we get through, and as we sing these songs of great praise to God, that these truths would circle through our heads and our hearts, and we would, we would respond with a resounding praise in this place and in our life. Because it has so just radically changed and shifted our view of ourselves and who God, who God is and His loving kindness. Atonement, a payment of human debt to God by a substitute which God Himself provided. Because remember, for God to be fully God, He must be all that He is all the time. There are parts of God we like, parts of God we don't like. We can't discard any of them. The two umbrellas for today is that he is loving and he is just. He is holy and he is gracious. I have a friend who talks about the crooked cross of Christ. And he's like, you cannot diminish one of those over the other because then the cross of Christ gets crooked. We need them both fully for the cross of Christ to be where it should be as our atoning sacrifice. So it is in the work of Christ that we see the full expression of God's love and his justice expressed in perfect Unity. Only in Christ can we say that the guilty are condemned and the innocent are acquitted. Only in Christ can we say, I know forgiveness. Only in Christ can God be a good God. Because without Christ, God has condemned the innocent. But more specifically, he has acquitted the guilty. And us. 
Do you realize the travesty it would be for us to be redeemed otherwise? I say that. I want us to feel the sting, but I want us to feel the elation of the joy in Christ in the next breath. How could we we be redeemed any other way? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Let's just go to one more. Romans 3, 23 through 26. We've quoted 3.23 already. Let's continue to the rest of this passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means a substitute, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just, the one who demands justice, and also the justifier, the one who makes it possible for us to be redeemed of the one who has faith in Jesus. So once again, the one who demands right is the one who makes it possible for us to be right. The one who has placed a sentence over our head is the one who satisfied the sentence that we deserve. The one who has said, the one whose law and truth says you're guilty is the one who satisfied that guilt in Jesus. And in that, in that, he's our representative, our substitute. He shed, Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that we could know and have this atoning sacrifice on our behalf so that we could know a victorious resurrection. You see, it wasn't just Jesus that was victory, that was victorious when he rose from the grave. You see, Jesus died. He stopped breathing. Blood stopped flowing. They stabbed his side, and blood and water came out, which is a sign that there is death. They placed him in a grave wrapped in clothes. He was dead. He rose from the grave, defeating death, but victory was not his alone. In his victory, you and I are victorious, is what we're seeing here. In his victory, we are made victorious. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this newness of life is not just the one we experience in eternal unity with God in heaven when our breath on this world stops, which every one of our breaths will stop on this earth. But it is the victory for today. John 10, 10 says, For I have come to give you life and life into the full. That is a life to the full today. That is not a prosperity, name it and claim it truth. That is to walk with the living God made possible in Christ is the most pleasurable, joyful, fulfilling thing we could know. Come what may. There will be struggles in this world, but in Christ, in that unity achieved in Christ, 
We have that life to the full today. Why? Because we have an incorruptible hope in Christ. Because, yes, we have an eternal hope that cannot be shaken. We have an identity that is not dependent on where we work or what we achieve or who we marry or don't marry, what we have, what we don't have. We have an identity that is rooted in Christ because we are adopted as sons and daughters, called as His own. That's where our hope comes from. That's that's why this matters. That's why this is not just Jesus' victory, but ours. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it was for today and eternity. It's experiencing the promise of the kingdom of God now, the promise of the kingdom of heaven now, and knowing that it is even greater to come. And in this victorious resurrection through the atoning sacrifice of the shed blood on the cross from Jesus, our our representative and substitute, that we can know that this is our only ground for salvation, our only grounds for hope. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds. You have been healed. Romans 6, 11, So you, all, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So not only do we have a living hope, we have a life now empowered by the Holy Spirit in us to live unto God today. Again, what more satisfying thing is there other than to live out what you were created for? We all want to do that. You were created for fellowship with God. You were created for your life to be a light that points to the glory of God. God says it is His glory that draws men to Himself. That is why we are called to live unto Him because it is in that righteous life that we show the righteous truth of God, which is the expression of His loving and good character, that our lives are the very beacon of hope and light and life and truth to the world. And so, as we cling to Jesus as the only grounds for our salvation, our only grounds for hope, we find the great byproduct that our lives are the very things God wants them to be for His glory, for His purpose. To to unpack that a little more, I was sitting in one of our Thursday night Bible studies a few weeks ago, and and I think it was Dave Louie's message, Abba Father, I just had the thought of thinking, you know, as a pastor and elder of our church, I, I think a lot about how, how do we help each other? How, how do we compel each other to an obedient life, to, a, to, a, to the purposeful life, to an intentional life, to a life that glorifies God, that lives out all that we're supposed to be? And I, and, and, and I know that I get distracted by behavior. I get distracted by making, making my, I put a lot of my effort into thinking about how can I make you do what you're supposed to do? which I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying I get distracted by that, and that ends up putting me in the throne. That put, ends up putting me as the sovereign. And really the question that came to my mind was like, how can you first fall more in love with Jesus every day, and then how can you help people fall more in love with Jesus every day? Because that, when we think about the gospel, when we think about grace, that's what we, you know, grace, is, grace will blow your mind. It does. We will all, if you truly get grace, you will come to the question that Paul asked in Romans 6.1. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? As soon as you get grace, you think, oh my gosh, well, why do I have to live right if God's grace is so covering? If God's grace is so complete, why do I have to do anything? Because it's once and for all in Christ and He achieved it. Well, 
The answer is because of such loving adoration. The answer is because we are so overwhelmed by that grace, by the move of that grace, that, again, God, the very one who demanded justice, satisfy that in His Son. And this week I was reading through Genesis, and I came to uh, Abraham and Isaac, which if you know, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was a young teenager. God said, go, take Isaac and sacrifice him to me. And they went up, they took him, they took wood for the altar, which he made Isaac carry. He built the altar, he puts Isaac on the altar, he prepares it, he ties him up, he raises the knife, and God says, wait. He says, I'll provide for you another sacrifice. He looks over, there's a ram in the thicket. He says, the Lord will provide, the Lord has provided, and we see that. And, I, and the point of this is I read that, and although I've read that and been taught from that many, many times in my life, all of a sudden this time, I just, I was walking with Gavin, my son who's five, and, and I was picturing, I mean, it just got very personal. I was like, and I've always known that me and God are different, but this time it was very real. I was like, I don't think I could do it, God. I don't think I could put my son on the altar. I just don't think I could do it. I don't think that I even, because like again, God knows the heart of man. So it wasn't that Abraham was like, okay, God's going to stop me at some point. Because God looked down and he was pleased. He said, okay, so now I know you trust me as the living God. He said, now I know. So he knew the heart of Abraham. He knew that Abraham's intent was to be obedient. He stopped Abraham. Abraham wasn't just going through the motions and God took his bluff. And, I was, and I was, it was just struck me. I was like, I don't think I could give my son. Does that sound familiar? John 3.16. Anyone want to quote that? Someone. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, will not die, but will have an everlasting life. It got personal real quick. And I'm like, man, God, you are good, and I'm not. Let's come back to the house that we burned down. I left out some details. So this house was this family's dream home. It was an old Georgia plantation mansion built in 1806. 12-foot ceilings, chandeliers in every room, beautiful spiral staircase right in the center of the home that had a wood, like a hand-carved wooden banister that was still the original from 1806 that was still there. They had gone through meticulous work for the previous 10 years to restore this home, and they wanted it to be authentic. They, they stripped it down and found the original paint colors and the original stain colors, and they restored it to be as it was in 1806 when, when Major White owned it. I don't know if you know, but Millersville, Georgia, which is where we were, used to be the capital of Georgia, and this is an historic house. Like, there are historic tours of Milledgeville. We had people in front of our house all the time taking pictures of our house. And we were a bunch of college dudes that because we were all older college dudes and we were all mature, responsible Christians, they were like, well, you're not going to have parties in our house, so we're going to lease it to you because they were living, because they had just had a young child and the house wasn't laid out great for a young family. So they were like, we're going to lease this out for a few years until our kids get older, then we're going to move back in. It was this house that we lived in for 16 days. And we, we, we'll say we. So we left a candle burning. And this beautiful house went up in flames. It was this prized possession that this man didn't give a second thought to until he knew we were okay and cared for. 
So all of a sudden now we see that it wasn't just a little something. This kindness that he showed us came at great expense to himself. He didn't know what was going to come of that house or what could be salvaged. It was in flames, like literally. So God's kindness to us in Christ came at great expense to himself, to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave himself so that we could know hope and salvation, so that we could know forgiveness and his justice could be satisfied. So what should our response be? I pray that we find ourselves in awe and wonder that leads to gratitude and even greater, not just gratitude, but love and adoration. That we fall more in love with Christ. That sounds like flowery, touchy-feely language, but man, I pray that that just, just grabs a hold of us. That we fall in love with Jesus. Understanding that willfully he went to the cross on our behalf. In his humanness, he prayed, Lord, take this cup from me, but your will be done, not mine. He could have called down angels, but he went as a sheep to the slaughter without making a noise. For you and for me as our representative and our substitute. So I pray that we find ourselves just, just being taken over by love and adoration, not guilt. And then that leads us to surrender, understanding that, again, for every need that we could think of in this world, Jesus is our hope. He is our hope. He satisfies every need. And then once again, when we think on that, we find ourselves surrendering. We're moved to love and adoration again. And as we find that, we move forward in that incorruptible hope, in love and adoration again. And then we look around us and we see a world that is hurting and in need, the widow and the orphan, those who are sinned against, those who are sinning daily, those who are bound in that captivity that we would find ourselves moved with great love and compassion, the very love of God shown in Christ with urgency and boldness, empathy, compassion, seeing our own need and the need around us and not being able to say, man, I'm glad that I know this truth in God. Good luck with that but that we say, I have to go be a part of the light and life and truth and love of God because of Jesus. So what is my hope today? When we think, as we think on the work of Christ, my hope is first off, if you have, have not acknowledged Christ as that Savior, the promised Messiah, that today would be the day that you find the freedom to surrender and say, I am in need. I have sinned against a glorious creator, God, and there is deserved a wrath against me, but Jesus satisfied it, so Jesus saved me. If you have done that, I pray that our response today is one of just great love, that we are washed over and we find ourselves just grateful, eternally grateful, finding ourselves in love with Christ today more and more, and that that love would be the thing that motivates us to give of ourselves, to live a life that honors and glorifies God, that expresses the righteousness and loves as Jesus loved it, coming into our world to confront the need, to confront the hurt. So the work of Christ... It's glorious. The work of Christ is our only hope, is our only way to salvation. So let us surrender and let us hold out that hope to the world around us. Let me pray. 
God, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. Lord, we thank you for loving us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you made a way to satisfy the very judgment that was required by you, God. Lord, out of your love, out of your selflessness, Lord, we can know hope. We can know salvation. So I pray for everyone in this room, whether it's the, the person seeking, asking questions, or sincerely, Lord, sincerely or insincerely, wherever they are, Lord, I pray, Lord, that your truth would break through, would bring uh, just clarity to hearts and minds, or there would be a courage to surrender. I pray for those in this room that, that have called on Christ as Savior, that are Christ followers. I pray that we would not be able to be aloof, to, to be impersonal as we think on the love and work of Christ. And Lord, that we would first uh, just sink into the gospel every day, knowing it's not just for salvation, but it's for living. And Lord, that we would hold out the gospel of life to all around us. Lord, let us be a church that lives as a family, serves as a family. Lord, hungry to see your glory made known in this world, knowing, Lord, that is the only hope, because that points us to you, calls us to Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.